So we are going to go back a little bit and uh, get three through five one more time a little and um, and then I'm really looking forward to some some meat on chapter five, um, six to eleven. Please think about this. And uh, I think all three of us are seeing this in about any commentary. And I just didn't realize it. How similar chapter 5, 1 to 11 is to chapter 8 in Romans. And uh, we'll be in chapter 8, but it won't be till Friday, September. But before then, if you get a chance, read 26 to 39 and compare uh, what we have here in chapter 5, 1 to 11. Security. So that you have security as a believer, there is a, this is the, the huge um, topic, I guess, that uh, it seems as though every commentator is, uh, is gravitating toward out of, this, out of this passage. Josh, is that, you spoke on that a second ago before Grant reads that. Is that kind of what you're getting? It's just... That yeah, I think you, when you look at 5 and 8, there's a lot of similarities. Some of the commentators talk about the theme being the assurance um, of our salvation, the finality of it, it, the completeness of it, and how that should lead us toward great hope. Um, 6 and 7 might be, one commentator said those were sort of the enemies of that hope, being the flesh and the law. And I thought that was an interesting way to look at it. But 5 and 8 really do have a lot of parallels. Kind of bookends, as yeah. we've seen. And no uh, surprise, maybe, because you remember how chapter 1, 16, and 17 were also bookends with chapter 3, 21 to 26 in the gospel on both sides and the depravity of man in between. So once again, there's one logical uh brilliant thought after another that Paul brings us in, in these chapters and it's so much fun to uh, to dig them up a little bit and to take a look so I hope today is uh, applicable to your soul. Would you pray uh, Grant for us after reading chapter 5, 1 to 11? Okay. Therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Um, thank you that we can gather once again as a local body and discuss your word with one another, Father. I pray that it would um, affect our hearts, that we would not leave the same as when we came in, Father, and that we would accurately um, represent and discuss your word, Father, and that your Holy Spirit would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Grant. Uh, MacArthur says, God does it ever proffer is um, love 
in measured drops, but in immeasurable torrents. And I hope that's what we get today. There are immeasurable torrents of God's love um, in this passage, and it just causes great rejoicing. There's six links to this chain of truth, this assurance um, that MacArthur points out. They're all in 1 to 11 here. First of all, in verse 1, there was that peace. Josh talked about that last week, this peace of God that is objective, that also ushers in a subjective peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, and that all believers have peace with each other because of that objective peace that they have with their Father. Number two, grace. We stand in this grace. We um, have access um, by faith into this grace, verse 2. 2B to 5A, the hope of the glory of God. And we're going to look at that here in a second, the hope of the glory of God. Number four, the fourth link to this chain of truth, 5B to 8, is the love of God through the Holy Spirit. We are loved deeply by God, and going to see that here in a second. Number five, we're delivered from God's judgment in 9 to 10. We're delivered from God's judgment, verse 9 to 10. And then there is this joy and exaltation. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 11, we are to exalt, we're to rejoice. And uh, I just have to say, I'm deeply convicted by this passage because oftentimes it seems like in this life right now, if I had to confess the truth, I'm just trying to persevere and not really rejoicing in every phase of this life like uh, we are, I, I believe, commanded to here. And it just makes great truth. When we think about the truth, We'll, um, we'll see that. And so those are the six that MacArthur points out, the six links. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, trials separate believism from true faith. Okay? A lot of people have believism, and once there's a trial that happens, and you've seen this, and maybe that was you at one point, that you felt like you were a believer, there's this huge trial, and you realize, wait a second, I'm floundering. This is not real faith, and so it separates the true faith from the believism, and that's where we are now in chapter 3 to 5. It's a litmus test, I guess you would say. How do we respond through sufferings? And it's, it's incredible. These sufferings, and I was encouraged to hear this, this isn't just sufferings that you have for being a believer. This is just everyday life sufferings. Um, and it seemed like every commentator said that. That these sufferings in chapter 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Those are all kinds of things. Any sort of sufferings that we have, and we have a barrage of them. Um, but believers, they, and this is obvious, we shouldn't fail in them. But what was convicting to me is we shouldn't just be stoic about them either. Not just put up with them, not just grit your teeth and say, okay, I don't think I'm going to make it through this. This is a rejoicing, right? That's, our, that's what we're commanded to do. And I think as, uh, we, as once you think through this a little more, there's so much reason to rejoice in them, to boast in them, to glory in them, to exalt in them. It's, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we don't rejoice in spite of them or not even in the midst of them. But because of them, because of them, we rejoice because of them. And that is just so fascinating to me. And Edith says, this is universal teaching throughout the New Testament. 
all over the place. Jesus is teaching this. Paul's teaching it. Everybody's teaching this, right? That that, that goes with it. So give me a reason. And there's how many? 200. What are some reasons that you know, and maybe you from experience, especially from the word, that we should rejoice in suffering? Throw some out there. What are reasons that every true believer should rejoice in sufferings, can rejoice in sufferings? Yeah, good, good, good. Yes. Authenticates things. Yes. The Spirit of God. Good. No, you're not suffering in vain. Good. It's not in vain. Right. Never got, there will never ever be a wasted suffering. They are always going to be used to make us more like our Savior. That's huge. What else? It can prove God's word true. Good. It proves God's word true, doesn't it? I think it's, we're going to look at it, it proves his love. It proves his word is true. It's exactly right. 100% of the time, Jerry. So good. Proves his word's true. I love it. Josh Grant, any more? What else? Anybody? That what? Yes. This passage, it builds these things that we all want. The perseverance, the character, the hope, absolutely makes us more mature and complete in Christ. What do you think? Additional? Yeah, I think it's it shapes us more into the image of Christ. And the trials are integral to that. Yes. At, boy, we'll see it for sure. What do you think, Grant? I'm enjoying listening to you. Yeah. They, it's, there any more that you can think of? There's so many. Once you start thinking of them, they're, they're great. Learn this from Scott. I'm going to give you 10 of them, but there's a bonus reason. Uh, learn that from Scott. He always has a bonus point. So, got a bonus reason for you. But let me give you 10, and you guys have already um, shared them. Uh, now, one thing that uh, Scott said, this wasn't next, right, one of them. This wasn't Scott. This was uh, um, this was somebody. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones, maybe. That when we suffer trials, we are fresh need for Jesus always drives us to get the fresh supply of grace that we need, right? Our fresh need through every trial, we realize our need. And it helps us to come to better acknowledge who Jesus is and who we are ourselves. So those kind of are overriding reasons. We get to know Jesus better and we understand that we are weaker than we thought we were. Martin Lloyd-Jones was really good on that, how much we overestimate our own abilities until we're going through suffering and then it puts us back in into our place. Let me run through a list and I'm going to run them through, uh, run through um, quickly here. Ten reasons to rejoice in sufferings and we'll post these. Um, well, I may have Josh post these. I'm not very good. I'm pretty good with post toasties. I don't like the Washington Post, but I might get you to post these, if you if you would I'll number one yeah the Romans 8 turn over there the Holy Spirit has prayed for the appropriate suffering right we'll be here in a couple uh, months look at verse 26 and 27 I'm convinced this says this likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he who searches knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit is always interceding. 
all the time. So I believe he's praying for just the right suffering, just the right trial. Because when we get that, number two happens, suffering is always for our good. Look at verse 28, and it follows, and it makes sense. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. No surprise there, right? If the Holy Spirit is praying that this happens, when it happens, it's working together for good. Which is, like Josh mentioned, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Number two is that suffering is always for our good. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Number three, God uses suffering to discipline his children. It is too good not to turn over there. Hebrews 12, a familiar passage, but such an enjoyable passage when you think about it because all of us are going, um, are undergoing discipline. And if we're not, we're illegitimate children. Josh, do you mind reading those? 5 to 11. Sure. Hebrews 12, 5 to 11. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Yes, I love it. Isn't that great? Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we're in trouble if we're not in trial. If there's not a trial going on in our life, that's not a good sign. Right, he says, just expect the suffering. And he was uh, even talking about his suffering at the time. There were people that were, uh, the liberal theologians were speaking wrongly of him. And he said, that's a lot better than if they're speaking well of me. I, I don't want that. That'd be terrifying. And so he just says, you know, woe, Jesus, he was quoting Jesus, woe are you if people are always speaking well of you. That's, we should expect it. And that goes with the discipline. Um, it shows that God's concerned. God's concerned about you. He's not just letting you go out to pasture. Isn't that a good deal? You know, he's taking care of us. He's going to fix all the things that are sinful about us. Number four, suffering prepares you for the next trial. And that's back to Romans 5. Miss um, Ashley really mentioned this in verse 3. Not only that, we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that what? Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. So it, it, it get, with every suffering, you get a little tougher for the next suffering, right? It produces uh, more perseverance. We persevere a little bit better, and then a little bit better, and then a little bit better again. God continues to do that, and that is a, um, a great thing. I love verse 5, through suffering... One becomes more sure 
of God's love. Through suffering, one becomes more sure of God's love. Jerry hinted at that um, when she was telling us that the hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that suffering, um, it produces um, that in us. Um, it's, it's incredible. Number six, suffering helps authenticate God's work in the believer. Second Timothy 3.16, those who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. You might remember John 16, 33. This is right before, this is in the sermon, I mean, uh, upper room discourse, right? Jesus is just ready to go to the cross. And he says, in this world, there will be trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. It is a guarantee that we will go through sufferings. Number seven, suffering is the quickest way to maturity. James 2 through 4. Remind, James chapter 1, 2 through 4. This passage reminds us of that. Once again, have pure joy. The command is have pure joy through the trials, knowing that they'll produce perseverance, and that will make us mature and complete in Christ. Let's not gripe about our sufferings. It's making us more like Jesus. It's the quickest way. Now, I am the biggest hypocrite on this. Have been this week, but I want to change my mind to this. I want to change my mind. It is right thinking. Why do we believe this? Because it's true. And if we will believe it, and if we will bank on the truth, and if we will believe that God's promises are true, we will be greatly changed. Number eight, suffering saints are an encouragement to other believers. Suffering saints, uh, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 11.1, um, to imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I think you see that in Paul. As he suffered, other people were encouraged. Remember in Philippians? They were encouraged. They were boldened by seeing Paul go through his. Number nine, suffering produces evangelistic opportunities by the millions, right? If you are handling suffering in a right way, somebody is going to notice that. And they're going to ask you for the hope that you have. And that gives you the opportunity to share with them. Share about your sufferings when that's appropriate and how God's helped you. You are his ambassadors. Number 10, suffering makes us long for heaven. You might remember that. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 16, 17, 18. Such a familiar and joyful passage to think about here. Outwardly, we are wasting away, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Hey, don't lose heart if you're suffering, right? That's the way this works. That's the way it's supposed to work. Verse 17, for our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison. It's an eternal way to glory that's happening beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then the bonus reason in honor of Scott, suffering causes us to share in Jesus' sufferings. Philippians. And maybe turn a few pages just to see it. Philippians chapter 1 ends in a really neat way. Chapter 3, 10, um, I think. Oh boy. Where did Philippians go? Galatians. Um. 
Look at the end of one. Look at 29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Mark would say that you see grandma cross-stitch that first part, but you don't ever see her cross-stitch that second part and put it over her bed. No one's cross-stitching suffer for his sake, but maybe we ought to. Chapter 3, verse 10. Um, maybe should start a little bit earlier. Man, how about 8? Indeed, I count everything at loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Whatever we lose for our sufferings, that's just rubbish because we're getting Christ in return. That's the treasure. Whatever we're losing, money, whatever it is, health, but it's not anything compared to getting Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the righteousness from the dead. So there's so many more reasons, but I hope that we can camp on these and think about these and and we become more assured of it when you look at chapter 6 through 8 because he says this is what we rejoice in. Verse 2, we rejoice. Verse 3, we rejoice. And then he's going to come back and say in verse 9, he's going to say that we rejoice. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I would have never thought about this. He said it's pretty interesting. He said that hope that is mentioned in verse 2, we rejoice in hope, that is both the parent of faithful endurance or patient endurance, and it's the child of patient endurance. This hope is what ushers in the opportunity to endure patiently, and then in chapter 5, and the hope does not put us to shame. It's also the child of that patient endurance. And I want to think about that more. That it's both the parent and the child of the patient endurance that we get from the suffering. Grant, chapter 6 or 8 is quite something. Yeah, well, right before we move on, I just wanted to ask you, I guess I don't really know how to ask you but you suffered a lot at age 17 when you were hurt and I know that you told me or you've, you've mentioned before that at the time you just felt like you were about to go even deeper with Jesus and I guess what through all that suffering because suffering is, is never easy it's by its very nature extremely painful what I guess, strengthen your faith to believe that this was all working for good. I do think, Grant, verse 2, there was this huge grace. It used to seem like God poured the grace on with a, I don't know, a glass and then like a five-gallon bucket. It was the 55-gallon drum of grace that was every day after that, after I broke my, I broke my neck when I was uh, 17 um, and and then since then, that grace has been so sufficient. And it was before that. And I think I had known the Lord for, as far as I can tell, haven't doubted knowing him and felt deeply loved by him since I've been five or six. But that was a time I remember riding the ambulance on the way to the hospital. 
And I thought in my mind, I don't know for sure. I can't move anything. This is probably, I guess, 20 minutes, 25 minutes after I broke my neck. I thought, I'm not moving anything. This may get to be serious, but the thought was, I really think this is going to be an opportunity to know the Lord. Because no one had lived an easier life than I had up to that point. Like, it was just kicks and giggles all day long, every day. And, uh, and at that point, I think it really, there were some, some bigger trials. But they didn't seem overwhelming. God's grace and his, his love. I think when you see it at 6 and 8, Grant, I would just say his love was so overwhelming. And I felt so loved by him every day, every day. Now, when what was it that we have more evangelistic opportunities? I thought about this. Number nine, I missed out on them. There were 40 of us on the same floor. There was one girl that knew the Lord, I think. Uh, that left probably a couple weeks after I got there. And as far as I knew, none of the other 39, all in a similar situation that I was in. So I had a golden opportunity to share Christ that I didn't take advantage of like I would have. But, but it's been remarkable, his grace. But also, Grant, I would say what I'm realizing is those were good days and that hope was the parent and the child for more suffering, for more perseverance, for more hope. And, uh, and I, so I think that's the way this life is. It just keeps getting better. I think it keeps getting harder. I think it's uphill both ways, right? Like your grandma walking to school in the snow, right? But I, it's, there's nothing compared to that love and that grace that always go with the trial. Mm. That's really good. Thanks for sharing that. that. So moving on to verses 6 through 8. Um, let's just read it. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones this weekend, he said uh, verse 6 is one of the best verses in the entire Bible, and I'm convinced that the more people you listen to, everyone, one of them will say this is the hardest verse to understand, or this is the best verse. We've heard it in chapter 3, and now Martin Lloyd-Jones again in, in chapter 5. But I really do think that this is something pretty special. It's almost a summary statement condensed down into just a few verses of, of things that Paul has described in chapter 1 and in chapter 3 when he introduces the gospel there by faith. But in this case, he's not really juxtaposing it to salvation apart from the law. Um, what's on display here for Paul is um, he's repeating himself to some degree, but the love of God that made salvation possible is on display, is what Lloyd-Jones said is the focus. Um, and this verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, I think Paul and John just, they go so well together on this. Uh, they definitely, when they had the right hand of fellowship over their theology, this would have been something I'm sure that they discussed. But in, in John um, chapter, well, chapter 3, verse 16, we all probably know that one. But For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the love of God is on display, and 
if you were like me for the longest time, I thought that word uh, so was the level of intensity for God so loved the world. Like I would say, I love Haley so, so much, or I love Thai food so, so much, something like that. Like the emphasis is on the word so, but in this case, I think it was Vodi Bauckham who for, first like straightened me out on this, was that this is describing how God loved the world. It's not the level of uh, intensity of the love is not described by so, but you could read it this way, uh, God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. Um, that's the way, or you could say for me, uh, instead of saying I love Haley so, so much, or I could say um, I love Haley in this way that I share the last spring roll with her when we're eating at Siritai, or maybe more accurately, I don't share the last spring roll with her. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, it's showing that in this way God loved the world, that he gave his only son. The intensity of the love is shown by the gift that he gave to us, his only son, uh, for sinners. And John also says it again in his epistle, or in 1 John, uh, very similar to what we're seeing here in Romans. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is... In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Um, and I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Um, that God is showing his love for us. He's demonstrating his love for us in this way that he sent his only son. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sorry, but let's. I just want to bring it back to propitiation just for a second. I feel comfortable doing that. I know I do it like basically every week and probably will continue to. Rightly so. Martin Lloyd Jones actually did it, so I feel like I'm yeah. in good company with that. But um, it was funny, even in his day, he was going against the people that were saying that uh, that's divine child abuse, that, you know, why would Christ be standing before God trying to convince him not to? harmless, like I died for these people, you don't need to pour out your wrath on them anymore, but I think this demonstrates that God sent his son because of his love. Our salvation is possible because of the action that came from God's love for us, and love has kind of fallen on hard times lately, not because it's not talked about a lot, but because it's talked about, I think, wrongly. It's um, Paul is highlighting here three words for us that we were not very lovable. He described us as weak, number one, and number two, as ungodly. And number three, as sinners. It's not as if God looked at us and he saw something that he just couldn't live without in heaven, which you may have heard before, but it's he looked on us and we were very, very unlovable. We were ungodly. We were opposite of him. We were weak, meaning we, not just physically weak, but we had moral inability to do anything for our situation. We cannot reach out to God and find him. We were completely morally inept. Um, and we're also sinners. Uh, this is a quote um, from John MacArthur, um, talking about verse 8, which we should probably reread. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or he, I think a better translation is God demonstrates or proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But John MacArthur says, but look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The vast, magnanimous reality of this is really overwhelming. What condescending love, what pardoning grace, what astonishing truth. I mean, people won't even die for a good, for good people, let alone giving up their life for wicked ones. Who would do that? God. When we were undesirable and worthless and helpless and impotent 
and enemies and hostile and haters of God and haters of Christ and rejecters of truth and proud and self-willed and the best that we could, that could be said about us is our righteousness is filthy rags and our heart is desperately, desperately wicked, full of deceit. Now listen to this. If God loves us enough to save us when we were ungodly, wicked sinners, will he not love us enough to bring us to glory now that we are his sons? That's Paul's point here. That's how he argues. That's how he unfolds his argument. And uh, MacArthur quotes another person, Charles Hodges, or Charles Hodge. If he loved us because we loved him, we would love us. he would love us only as long as we loved him and on that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But as God loved us as sinners, as Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. And I think that's just so helpful um, to think about that it's not based on what I was or how I loved God. It was totally based on Him. He was the prime mover in this. He loved me when I was unlovely, and He showed it or demonstrated it uh, publicly by sending his son to die for me. And Paul also contrasts this a little bit. I skipped it, but in verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Um, several different ways you could take those two classes of people. You could say the righteous person is different from the good person, which I think is probably uh, the correct way that a righteous person is just morally upright, and a good person would be considered a benefactor or someone who did good to you. Uh, a lot that goes in that, but basically, um, perhaps someone would die for someone else that was good or that had received a large gift or goodness from someone. Perhaps they would die for them. Um, we certainly know that you know a parent would, would potentially die for their children or the people they love or a family member. Um, but that's even that's sometimes pretty rare. I don't know of anybody that has died for someone else out of a great sacrifice of love. Maybe y'all do, but I think it's pretty rare. Um, but that's even people that love someone else. They're on the same team, in the same family. They're friends. But it's juxtaposed, or Paul contrasts it, that God actually shows his love for us that we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He died for us when we were altogether unlovable, which I think is amazing. And Tyler Williams, you know, maybe we'll get his permission and post it, post it but he wrote a very helpful article on this demonstration of God's love and was arguing that the, the word is actually in the present tense, that it's still showing God's love for us, a past event showing God's love for us in the present. Um, but I'll let him explain that because it's quite complicated in the Greek and I don't speak Greek. But his summary, I thought, was very helpful for application about this. And he says, um, in light of all this, so what? As with the pursuit of being precise with the text and its interpretation, we likewise want to be precise in our application. Therefore, we have confidence, we have assurance, we have hope that because of the all-sufficient work of Christ's death, we can continue to experience the love of God in our lives presently as we grow in sanctification and even know for certain that based on Christ's sacrificial work, we will be brought into glory by God's love. So Christian, when you sin, Paul would direct you, direct you to look to Christ, look to Christ's work on the cross and see it as all-sufficient evidence as to why you can still receive and experience God's love today and every day because he himself stands the evidence of your justification together in Christ's death and loves you each day for you are in Christ and you have peace with God and nothing can remove, remove you from his love in Christ. I thought that was so helpful. That's great. To pile on to what Grant's saying here is 
Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, why does he leave out our work in making these things? A lot of commentators in three to five or even six to eight will say, you know, it's our, like God's kind of rewarding us for what we're doing. I love this question. Why did he leave out our part of it? Like it's not conditional. Why did, why, where's our condition uh, in it? And I loved what he said. He left it out because Paul assumes that God will overcome believers' tendency to wilt under pressure. God knows our tendency that if it was up to us, I love the way you put it, Grant. If God's going to love us when I love him, that's not going to be very often very well. But it's despite who we are. And that's so, doesn't uh, in counseling, sometimes don't we get this mixed up almost to where uh, it, it, it's almost like we deserve God's blessings and God's care and... Uh, Make it a little man-centered instead of God-centered? Yeah, I think it's probably somewhat human nature to even yeah. drift a little bit that way based on what we do. But what a corrective this verse is. Yeah. You know, with those Thoroughly three God or centered. four terms being ungodly, weak, enemies-centered, <laughs> yeah. we don't warrant God's love whatsoever. No. How about 9 and 10, Josh? Um, yeah, so 9 and 10, moving on. Um, I'm just going to read it. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Um, Lloyd-Jones said it's not unscriptural to be logical. And these two verses, they're kind of parallel verses. He's making a, a logical um, argument here from the greater to the lesser. Like, if this one thing is true, how much more will this be true? And um, he, at the beginning of his sermon on this topic, just kind of made a challenge to his listeners to try and grow in this area, to take um, scriptural truths and apply them so that we're not governed by our feelings or uh, how, you know, our moods day to day, but we take the truth of God, um, wrestle with it in our minds, and let it really govern and dictate how we feel on a day to day basis. Um, and that's what he does here. So let's just look at what what is the argument. And Paul, being the master logical reasoner that he is, makes a very clean and airtight argument uh, here, it's beginning in verse nine, and. His point is this, because we've been justified, we will be spared from the wrath of God. That's the first argument in verse 9. And so he's saying if, if we have been pronounced not guilty, if we have been justified uh, because of the blood of Christ shed for sin, how much more in the future will we be saved from God's wrath? Um, if he's, Stott said it like this, if, if he's done the difficult thing, how much more will he do the relatively simple thing? And so in other words, if, if the obstacle have, of sin has been removed, sin obviously is what separates us from Christ, if it's been removed, um, then we can be sure we'll be saved uh, from God's wrath. We will not have to endure God's wrath. Schreiner said it like this, he will not accuse those who he's vindicated will not accuse those who he's vindicated. So if we're justified, we can be sure in the future we will not have to endure God's future wrath that will come before the unbeliever. Um, 
And then verse 10, we have a similar thing going on here, but with, with a different idea, not being reconciliation. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we have this idea of reconciliation. If, if justification is kind of a legal or a law, a court type of term, reconciliation is the language of, of personal relationship. It's very relational language. And so when you reconcile something, you're, you're bringing two hostile parties back together. Um, it's to make peace, or it's to, you know, to bring about peace between two parties that were formerly estranged. Um, and so this, between us and God, is the relational status change that we undergo as former enemies to friends. It's very connected uh, with peace that we looked at last week. We now have the peace with God. And so these are just, two, I think, two images here of what God has done for us in Christ. Uh, Schreiner said, we stand in good position of not guilty, and then we also go from enemies to friends with God. And um, I, I think one of the more interesting things about this with reconciliation is that we were the ones who offended God, yet he initiates the reconciliation. Um, he's the one that pursues us. He's the one that comes after us and removes the enmity and hostility. And I just think, how what amazing news this is. Um, Doug Moose said this kind of as an application point. We should rejoice at this, and that's exactly where Paul goes in the next verse. But also, this can be a great encouragement, I think, to those of us that may be downhearted or um, faltering in our faith when we consider uh, the relational status or the new status that we have that Christ has accomplished. We're, we've been justified, and now we have peace with God, and we've been reconciled back to him. Um, and, and one last thing, this came at a great cost. Uh, you see in verse 9, we've now been justified by his blood. And then similarly in 10, uh, we were enemies reconciled to God by the death of his son. And the great cost was the death of God's own son, Christ shed his blood to bring about this new uh, reconciliation and justification, which is really good news. <clears throat> Boy, that is good news. One of the commentators said that that kind of love, to, to know God's love, he called it the most important characteristic of the believer. I thought, I thought that was pretty interesting and pretty good for kind of self-examination is to say, how much are you convinced that God loves you? He said, not how much are you convinced that you love God. How convinced are you that God loves you? And because everything else will spring out of that. A humility, a deeper love for God, rejoicing, all of those things. And that's what Josh mentioned. That look at verse 11 then. More than that, we also rejoice in God. I love the way, it might have been Joan said, the capstone of the believer's experience is boasting and exalting in God himself. Okay, so verse 2, we were rejoicing in hope. Verse 3, we're even rejoicing in sufferings. Now we're rejoicing in God or exalting in God, in God himself. That's the capstone of any believer's experience in just boasting and exalting in God himself. The greatest good for believers is fellowship with God. And he receives the glory and the praise 
that sinful human beings have so long denied him. When God loves you, he will develop in you a deeper love for him. And as that happens, you operate in the truth. I feel like we've been heavy today on just a lot of logical truth here. But if we can grab that, and we can see this is objectively who you really are, right? This is your status. You are loved deeply by God and not because of anything that we have done. We love him because he first loved us. Then we are changed and that makes sin terrifying. Why? Because sin is what hurts our fellowship with God. The very best thing in the life of the believer is our fellowship with our Savior. So flee evil. Get out of there. Whatever it is, temptation. Right? It's not, sin is not a small thing. It blocks that perfect fellowship. Your relationship doesn't change. No matter how much we've sinned, we're still his children. That's not changing a lick. Justification doesn't take shots at being at our own sinfulness. But that fellowship which is so rich and great out of God's love. So I hope we camp on this. I hope we're changed. Think about all these phenomenal truths and, and go to Romans 8. Team them up. Let that be a, a, a left-right combination punch uh, when you need it. And I think we need it all day long because it feels like it's uphill both ways sometimes, doesn't it? No, I think this is great news. Let me pray. Father, we're so grateful. Uh, it's overwhelming how you loved us while we were still sinners, weak, ungodly, even your enemies. And so, Father, we are so grateful that you have reconciled us to yourself. And now you have given us almost unbelievably the ministry of reconciliation that we should share with others. And I pray that we would do so aggressively, thankfully, humbly, um, but that we would pursue the, the lost and that we would also share with believers one after another these phenomenal truths um, that we can feast on today. And so, Lord, as we uh, think about Romans 5 throughout the week, please remind us we are forgetful humans and we forget so often who we really are in Christ so convince us of the truth, we pray, um, for your glory. And help us to rejoice in you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. If you get a chance, read about original sin in uh, the rest of chapter 5 for next week. Oh, in two weeks from now, special guest lecture, Randy Tyler Williams. <laughs> Two and three weeks. Uh, we have a verbal commitment. So, Lord willing. Thank you.